Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. You can't really see it because it's radio, but we actually have a $75,000 crane shot uh, that's happening right now with this music. Yeah, we paid a lot of money. It's where your contributions to public radio go. So before we begin, I just want to say on a personal note that my father, who was an active playwright at the time, went to uh, the opening on Broadway of West Side Story in, I guess, 1957. Uh, and, and my father was not the kind of person who was necessarily impressed by, I don't know, new things or radical departures from the norm. I mean, he wasn't always unimpressed by them either, but I, I wouldn't have really known how to anticipate what my father's reaction to West Side Story would have been, except that he told me that walking out I, I mean, and I, he probably like, <laughs> I'm not kidding when I say he probably sat with Arthur Miller and some other playwrights. He said, walking out, everybody just thought the world is never going to be quite exactly the same again. And, and Broadway theater is not going to be the same. And certainly the American musical is not going to be the same. I mean, it's important to realize how just what an incredible departure West Side Story was in so many different ways. You know, and, and, and now occasionally we look back and we see things that maybe don't ring quite right. One of the people who's had that reaction was Stephen Sondheim, who wrote the lyrics. Um, he had some problems with his own lyrics. But it's, it's an amazing, amazing property. Uh, and, and incredible things have been done with it. In 1961, Robert Wise and uh, Jerome Roberts co-direct, Robbins co-directed uh, the movie version, the famous movie version. And now there's another movie version. It is not, or so they claim, as a way of maybe getting away from certain kinds of problems. They don't claim it's a remake. They claim specifically it's not a remake of the 1961 movie. But it is directed by Steven Spielberg with a script by Tony Kushner. Um, I think significantly the uh, music direction role is shared by David Newman and Gustavo Dudamel, who in an odd way is the closest thing to the kind of crossover celebrity conductor that Leonard Bernstein was uh, in, in his lifetime. Uh, and with a very unusual new cast and, of course, a familiar old face in the form of Rita Moreno, who is now 90 years old uh, and uh, has a significant role in this movie. It's not some kind of, you know, mercy booking or something like that. It's a it's a good sized role with a big song. So here to talk about all that, I'll stop babbling. Rebecca Castellani is the I should also tell you that. Uh, later in the show, some of us will talk about some matters of equal artistic importance. Uh, 
Kim uh, and Kim Kardashian and Kanye West and Pete Davidson being one of them and Wheel of Fortune being the other. All right. So uh, joining us today, Rebecca Castellani, the co-founder of Quiet Corner Communications and a freelance writer. Sam Hattleman works in music public relations and hosts The Sam Hattleman Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. And Steve Metcalf, who is our music savant in all ways, founder and director of the Garmony Concert Series at the University of Hartford's Hart School, now in its 13th season, uh, a composer, uh, a critic, a scholar of music, and somebody who has been on many, many musical adventures with me, and I'm the luckier for it, including at least one that involved Leonard Bernstein. But anyway, so Metcalf, I think we should start with you. Uh, I mean, obviously, this this musical means a lot to you. Uh, the 61 movie version means a lot to you. Uh, so I don't know, just give us your immediate reaction to, to what Spielberg has done. Well, uh, as succinctly as I can, you know, the amazing thing, I think, is that that this movie, first of all, was made at all, that is to say Spielberg's movie, and that it has arrived at a moment like this. I know it didn't do great box office numbers in the theater, but I think that was as much COVID as anything. Um, But but we're talking about it. You know, people are talking about it, and uh, I like to think that now that it's out on Disney and I guess a couple of other platforms it's it's going to be kind of back in the conversation for a while at least i i hope that's the case i just i just want to remind everybody that when this project was announced like over two years ago um you know first of all you had all the people who said well gee you can't remake the 1961 movie because it's definitive and it's perfect and it can't be improved upon which of course was ridiculous but a lot of people said that and then they said well and if you're going to make another west side story you know, let's not have it be directed by a 70-year-old Jewish guy who's never done a music, uh, a musical before. You know, and then quintessentially, the woke police were criticizing this movie before a frame was even shot. In fact, before it was even cast, criticizing it because it couldn't possibly be authentic enough or, you know, sort of uh, true enough to the to the various uh elements that uh that that are part of it and and so you had everybody basically i mean very few people were saying oh my god this is great i can't i can't wait to see it um and interestingly enough here we are and after this movie came out in the theaters in december you know let's be honest most of that chorus kind of fell silent because frankly the movie is great it is a great movie it is uh, a movie that is certainly faithful to the intentions and hopes and dreams of its creators and and i think it basically exceeded everybody's expectation uh, I'm I'm with you all the way on that. You know, it's interesting, Rebecca, that he says, you know, that the woke police were on high alert uh, about its possible failure to check the right boxes in terms of social justice, social consciousness, inclusion and stuff like that. But there, another thing happened, which was the minute people saw like in the opening sequence, we see kind of New York, but we see rubble. We see this almost kind of post-apocalyptic look of an area. And then there's a little bit of a pullback and you see this sign It's the future home of Lincoln Center. And, yeah. there, and, and there was another chorus of, oh, it's going to be woke. Tony Kushner's <laughs> going to introduce all these social. So you can't win, right? One way or no. another, you're going to hit a tripwire. No, you can't win. But I think it managed to 
produce a, a modern movie that fixed some of the obvious racist issues with the original, despite being a wonderful film, is definitely problematic. And I think that the way that was to me the most successful part of the movie. I, I loved the interjection of Spanish. I love that it wasn't subtitled. I thought the casting was great for the most part. So I think that that was honestly to me the most successful part. And I, I still really liked the movie. I don't want to. I don't want to say that I disliked it, but I think I figured out what my issue with this is, and that is that I don't think I really like movie musicals. And I think that the original, there was so much about it that felt like watching a musical on stage. I mean, it's very theatrical. The lighting is very theatrical. You're very conscious of the set. You're very conscious of the sort of, you know, typical music, awkward transition into song. And this very much felt like a Spielberg movie and that it's beautiful. It was natural. The transitions into the music were natural. And to me, that just doesn't really feel like a musical. And I guess that like, that's maybe just a personal problem I have with that specific genre. So I found myself sort of being detached from the movie in between the songs that I was obviously so excited to hear again. I don't know. So that was kind of my takeaway from it. Before we go to Sam, let's hear a little bit of, of what the movie sounds like when people are not singing. So um, we're, you're going to hear Rachel Ziegler, uh, who is the new Maria, uh, David Alvarez, who's the new Bernardo, and uh, Ariana DeBose uh, as the new Anita. I'm a grown-up now, Bernardo. I can dance with anyone I like. As long as he's Puerto Ricano. But why? Tony's a nice boy. Tony. Oite eso. Tony. Tony. Who cares if he's a, I don't know what he is, a Yankee? <laughs> he's a Polak. That's what he is, a big, dumb Polak. Polak, says they speak. Now you sound like a real American. <laughs> I don't want you to marry a gringo. Marry him? I dance with him, Bernardo, for a minute until you, you're crazy. I can't talk to you anymore. Ya no lo soporto. No soy una bebé. I was okay on my own. Just me and papi for five years without you. All you came here where you do everything you want. You you study and you make money. And he boxes. See? Sí. And you have your boxing. And he fights in the streets. Don't fight with the jets. Don't fight with the jets indeed. But uh, they do. Uh, so, Sam, uh, uh, there were a lot, a lot of reasons why I wanted you to be on this show, including the fact that your uh, heritage is kind of evenly divided between, as Steve has suggested, this was originally uh, created by a group of Jewish men writing partly about the Puerto Rican experience. I'm talking about Bernstein, Spielberg, Lorenz. Um, and um, yet it was this immortal piece of musical theater open to some criticisms about the authenticity of the Latino portion of it. Um, and so your your heritage, which feel free to talk about, you're kind of split right down the middle here. Yeah. And also, I should add, I've never seen a musical on my own accord, <laughs> like ever in my life. I, I saw Hairspray when I was nine and that was I. But like, I've never, ever like watched a musical. I, I didn't know anything about West Side Story. I didn't know anything about the politics of it. I didn't know who Tony was. Like, I had no idea what was going on. I was like, <laughs> Oh my God, uh, I feel pretty from this. Like what? I had no idea. Um, I didn't think that I was like, it didn't really affect me. If I'm going to sit here and get mad about all the representation of black and brown movies that have white people behind directing, producing and writing, I, I could be here all day. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that that's something that really poked at me. Um, I did think that it was cool how they like displayed like the class struggle between the Jets and the mm -hmm. Puerto Ricans of the area. 
I thought that was cool. Uh, obviously, the themes of assimilation and, you know, should we be, I, I, I don't know, that question of like, should Maria be with Tony that was poised by Bern, uh, Bernardo? Bernardo? Bernardo. Bernardo. I thought, that, I, I thought that was really interesting. And sometimes I think about these things like a little too big brained. Like, I was just thinking like, oh my God, there's so many themes tied into this movie. Like, from the police representation, have the police have the Jets back, but not the Puerto Ricans back. Like, that whole speech at the beginning given by the police officer. Like, I thought that this was a really good representation of a lot of issues that plagued uh, the New York in the 1950s, especially after the GI Bill and World mm. War II and how the identity of, you know, uh, the upper part of New York changing rapidly, especially with highway development. I thought that was cool. And you could also apply those politics to today. So I wasn't mad about it. I didn't need to use my con degree to figure out that maybe it shouldn't have been Steven Spielberg behind the lens, but... <laughs> He made it look beautiful, so I'm not mad about it. Right. And I mean, this is the, a lot more backstory has been put into this movie than existed in the previous works. And we do understand very, I mean, Riff has this pretty, Riff, who's the co leader of the Jets, has this speech, which I wish I'd written down, but he says something that I, he says, I wake up every day and more has been taken away from me by people I don't know, people who, have, who aren't from here, people I don't like. Um, he's talking about the Puerto Ricans, the Sharks, but he's talking about a lot of other things, too, talking about how change is happening. So, um, and I want to circle back to that as we go along here, but but Metcalf, since I have you at my disposal right now, I want you, I want you to talk a little bit about how it sounds musically. Uh, as you know, I, I, was in, I thought having Dudamel uh, conduct and be sort of co-music director or something was a genius move. And I just thought the whole thing, I don't have your ears, but to me, the whole thing just sounded, I mean, the orchestration, uh, the arrangements just sounded spectacular. Well, I, uh, not only could I not agree more, but I was so, um, I was so happy a few weeks ago, one night to find that the, that the cast album from this new movie had dropped on the streaming services. And so with some trepidation, I went on and listened to it. And I was thrilled to discover, just as you say, that the sound of it is fantastic, much better, incidentally, than the 61 movie. The 61 movie, musically, was riddled with problems, not the least of which was that the, the recorded sound was lousy. Uh, Bernstein hated it, by the way. And uh, by contrast, the, the sound of this new uh, soundtrack is just, it's phenomenal. And, and as you say, Dudamel, you know, I just can't think of a better choice to, I mean, he's Venezuelan, he grew up with this music, he's the right generation. He obviously knows every note of it. Uh, he put out a few years ago, a famous, a now famous, uh, kind of excerpt of his youth orchestra playing the dance at the gym music, which which went you know viral all over the universe. So he was the ideal person, and and you know what you raise is important because what what Sam and Rebecca have been talking about in terms of the what should we say sociological and racial themes that are explored in this piece. Let's not forget that it is essentially a a piece of music. It is a musical. Mm work uh with a with an absolutely brilliant score um probably you know two or three of the greatest scores uh in broadway history and so for the music to have succeeded the way that it did uh to me is the thing that 
that identifies it as a as a great movie. And while you have the floor, too, can you talk a little bit about the singing? I, as you know, my sense was that the singing, you know, not that uh, that Maria doesn't have a, a beautiful soprano, uh, and that there isn't quite a bit of expressive singing in general there, but it's the fashion these days seems to be to not quite burst into song, to not quite sound too singy. When you're singing, uh, if singing is an adjective, and, and I, I thought this Steve kind of followed that a little, a little bit. It seemed less. I went back and I listened to a little bit of the '61 thing, and it's just obviously some of the people singing in the '61 movie are not the people up on the screen, which can accentuate that problem. But I also thought there was sort of a naturalizing of the singing. But you, you might have heard it differently. No, I don't think so necessarily. I mean, there has been for a long time, and of course, as you know, Colin, Sondheim has spoken of this for many years, that he he prefers uh, for his for his musicals a uh, a kind of a voice that doesn't sound plummy and with a big vibrato and a sort of operatically trained voice. Um, but neither was he happy with you know, say Johnny Depp trying to sing in Sweeney <laughs> or or the or the new fashion in some minds like Baz Luhrmann doing uh, what what's his face is Moulin Rouge with people who, shall we say, can't sing. <laughs> so so there's this interesting little sweet spot that I think people have aimed for. And I think I think um, uh, I, th- I think that, uh, you know, folks making the, the movie talked about this. In other words, to try to find people who can sing, because this is not an easy score to sing, but who at the same time sound natural as the characters that they are. I know a lot of people have, have kind of, I don't know, they've turned up their nose a little bit at Ansel Egort for not being such a strong singer, but I thought he... He sang like you would kind of want Tony to sound singing, you know, and and he certainly has musical training enough to to hit the notes. Maria is not an easy song to sing. So so I I thought they got that rather difficult sweet spot pretty well. All right. So, Rebecca, that gives us two things to talk about. But let's talk about Ansel Elgort for a second. Uh, he is uh, stepping into the shoes of Richard Beamer, as you now know. I was not a fan of Richard Beamer. I think he's actually one of the weak parts uh, of the 61 movie. I-, I thought Elgort was an improvement. I don't think he's still quite the Tony we want, but but he came a lot closer in, in a lot of ways. But what was your reaction? Yeah, I was met on Elgort. I felt compared to everybody else, he certainly had the most identifiably weaker singing voice. But more egregiously, I just felt that he was kind of had a flat affect. Like I, when he was in the emotional scenes, I could see him acting emotion, but I was obviously very aware of that. I just think I don't really love Ansel Elgort generally. Like I don't think there's anything, maybe with the exception of Baby Driver, that I've really loved him in. So I think it's maybe just my personal issue more than anything else. But I do think the fact that you've got someone like Rachel Zegler and uh, it's Andrea DeBose. Uh, I think it might be Ariana. Ariana DeBose. I mean, powerhouse singers next to Ansel Elgort, who is, you know, struggling. I almost felt like in some moments he was auto-tuned. Like they were like, obviously I'm sure he wasn't, but like some sort of like reaching for the note that I just was kind of aware of. But I agree. I don't think... uh, Beamer was a standout either. And I would love if they ever do this movie again to see someone really nail the role of Tony and bring like the pathos that I think sometimes the character is missing. Like he just kind of gets the like 
the hunk treatment without it kind of really getting into the emotional pull so much. So I, I would like to see someone else take on the role in the future and see what they do with it. Yeah. By the way, I thought makeup was very unfair to Johnny Depp in his uh, prior comments. <laughs> Johnny, Johnny Depp was not the worst singer in Sweeney Todd. Helena Bonham wow. Carter, who I worship. I worship every every smoky breath that comes out of Helena Bonham <laughs> Carter. But boy, can she ever not sing. And you shouldn't take over an Angela Lansbury role if you can't nail the songs. Um, all right. So um, just before we get to Sam here, let's hear a little bit of the acting of Ansel Elgort as Tony and Rachel Zegler as Maria. A2. My brother, there's so much more against him than grief. He's angry because... The whole world has been against Rift since he was born. Do you think it's easier for us? Uh, well, I think you come from families, homes. You and Bernardo, you have hope. You think Rift has that? Rift could have hope if he didn't try to take hope from people he doesn't know. Rift didn't start this. It was Bernardo. He came after me. After just because I wanted to dance with you. Tony, if someone gets hurt because of what we do... What did we do to anyone? Don't do anything wrong liking each other, pero. Maria, I don't just like you. We can't pretend what we do doesn't cause trouble. I can't talk my guys out of making trouble. Trouble is what they're made of. So, um, Sam, uh, I'm just curious because, in fact, you do come to this as a relative uh, uh, innocent uh, about musicals. I, I don't know. Where, where, where did this all leave you? I mean, in a way, this isn't a good on-ramp. I mean, this is, you know, this is sort of uh, probably would be better to watch five musicals or movie musicals <laughs> first and then get to West Side Story. But I, I don't know. Does this make you kind of a little bit more excited about the form? Well, uh, I think the only time I'm watching five musicals is if, if I'm doing 10 to 20 in Gitmo and they're torturing me. But <laughs> I did really like it took me like 20 minutes. I was like sitting there. I was like, oh, my God, if I see one more guy twirl with flippy hair, I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> but like once I stopped being so crass, I was like, oh, this is kind of nice. Like they're just describing their emotions in song. I can get with this. Like, I, I, I don't know. Also, like I didn't expect it to be so violent. Like, because my mom loves this movie, which I think kind of speaks to that uh, aspect of it being a movie that a lot of Puerto Ricans hold in, like, high esteem. Like, my mom was always singing, uh, I like to live in America, and, I, and now I kind of, like, figured out where that's from. Um, <laughs> but let me just say, yo, Tony's a dog. Like, he's a dog. He he stabbed her, her Maria's brother, and then they were cuddling, like, 15 minutes later. I was like, what's going on? Like Spoiler. Uh, I yeah, spoiler. Sorry for the seven <laughs> no, years spoiler. It's, it's okay. Uh, I, I also liked how it was like a whirlwind of Romeo and Juliet and Jesus. Like at the end when they're carrying Tony's lifeless body. I definitely got some real Jesus vibes, like die for all their sins. Um, but I really, I think I could watch a musical again. And you know what I really loved about this movie is that it looked so old, but like authentically old. Like the colors, the vibrance of them, the outfits, the style, the neighborhood like it didn't feel like an old movie a new movie trying to be old it just felt like old and i really enjoyed it i i would watch a musical like that again definitely all right so take take a pencil jot down uh this name hamilton i think that's the one you should <laughs> no nah, nah, no nope, 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 nope. not gonna do it all right so so uh, so Metcalf, we should talk just a little bit i mean uh, this is we talk a little bit about Spielberg's style, you know and and we know that if he has to choose between bright colors and subdued colors 
He's probably going to choose bright colors a lot of the time, but maybe not the incredible floral palette that we got from Robert Wise uh, and, and, and Jerome Robbins. But if he could, has a choice between bright lights and dim lights, between uh, a sunny day and a cloudy night, you know, he's going to go towards some of those brighter options. My sense was, like, taking America down off the rooftops into the streets on a sunny day was really a great choice. I've heard people say, nah, too much, and, and the choreography is too much. There's just so much going on in the choreography of some of these big numbers that you can't see any of it. Um, I don't know. I didn't really have that problem. I, I think I understand that criticism, though. Well, let me just say, when I was watching the other day and we came to America— and and as you as you point out in the sixty one movie, it takes place up on a dimly lit rooftop. Now it's down on the street. Um, when when I watched that number, I had to stop and rewind it and watch again because it just it just <laughs> completely bowled me over. And I and I realized watching it the second time, there's this lovely little moment where toward the end, a group of children who are just gathered on mm -hmm. the sidewalk kind of see what's going on and they run in and insert themselves into the dance in this in this charming kind of way which was certainly not in the in the in the original film um and i and i have to also say this is not exactly i guess what you were aiming at but uh i have to also say you know jerry robbins jerome robbins who did the original choreography of course and it was spectacular choreography the likes of which nobody <clears throat> had ever really seen this, uh, you know, this this new set of choreography by Justin Peck does not try to top that in any way, and it certainly doesn't try to imitate it. And yet, it it all works, you know, in a way that that seems kind of right and natural, and and in a and in a funny way, kind of modern even. So, uh, uh, America is just one example, I would say, of the numbers in this movie that that. Uh, you know, are respectful of the old tradition and, and pay homage to it in a certain way, but are completely reimagined in a way that's that's thrilling. I mean, that that is the most thrilling number in the movie. Yeah, although the gym dance is close and people are going to talk forever about the behind the bleachers shot. And the, there's sort of a reverse Wizard of Oz thing that happens where it kind of goes from from loveliness to kind of when they're interrupted and awareness of where they really are. Um, and uh, the, one, the one takeaway I would want everybody listening to have, and then I'm going to very quickly bring one thing uh, up with Rebecca, is there's no way in the world that you should, only, you should watch only one of these two movies. And, right. um, and Steve will be delighted to know that your nephew and your sister-in-law last night watched the new one. And then even though they've watched the old one pretty recently, got the old one up on the screen and started comparing scenes and stuff like that. So, sure. um, so yeah, I mean, there's nobody should just watch one of these. Don't just watch the Spielberg. Don't just watch the Robert Wise, Jerome Robbins one. You got to watch them both because they just each one has things that the other can't really get at because of the stylistic differences. Now, Rebecca, there's one thing that one area of interesting division is the character of Riff, played here by Mike Feist, who um, who a lot of people on social media are sort of clamoring for and saying he should have been up for a Best Supporting uh, Actor Oscar. He wasn't I wasn't entirely thrilled with him. I mean, I can see what's great about him, but he's kind of scrawny. I don't know. I just, I just miss Russ Tamblin somehow. <laughs> but, I, but you're younger than I. I don't know. How, how, did, how did this riff work for you? No, I completely agree with you. I thought he was pretty forgettable. 
I think that a lot of the Jets look very similar. Um, and yes. Sort of all seemed like one character and Riff was just the mouthpiece of the character, but wasn't the same Riff, like that identity that the Wise film has. So, yeah, I'm, I'm completely with you. I was kind of met on him, too. I just I felt that the women really stole the show across the board here. And we should really just close up by saying Rita Moreno is a goddess. <laughs> I mean, my goodness, she looks phenomenal. Her voice sounds great. I love that they gave her someday. I mean, it was just wonderful. Yeah, I hadn't read anything about it. I'd sort of stayed as clean as I could. So I didn't know I, that she was going to sing that song. Uh, and it was kind of thrilling when she did. All right, we really have to go now. Thanks to Steve Metcalf, who oddly enough does not want to talk about Kim Kardashian <laughs> and Kanye West and Pete Davidson. I cannot imagine why, but we'll take a break and we'll be back with Sam and Rebecca. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, we're back. Rebecca Castellani and Sam Hadleman still with us here on the nose. Uh, and um, I know roughly the same amount about Kanye West that Sam Hadleman knows about Broadway musicals. So it's good. <laughs> it's all going to balance out here very effectively. Uh, but I do know that every week there's some kind of controversy involving Kanye West, and sometimes there's three or four of them. I know that this week, uh, because Kim Kardashian, Kardashian is now legally single, uh, no longer Kim Kardashian West. Kanye is not taking it well. What a surprise, because usually he just rolls with things, right? I mean, <laughs> it's usually just sort of whatever. Uh, so, so, Sam, maybe you can kind of set this whole thing up. What has Kanye been doing? Um, okay, so let's just go over the last couple months. Uh, he, <laughs> he, him and Kim break up. He starts dating Julia Fox, the lead from Uncut Gems. He releases a new album exclusively on a, a device that he made up called the Stem Player, which is actually awesome, but it sucks because it's from him at the moment. Uh, and now, for the last about month, he's been having like weird murder, like murder fantasies about Pete Davidson and using Instagram and his music to communicate them. And yeah, it's just been a whole mess. I believe it's called um, Uncut Jams. Uh, uh, Jams. You, you, you said it wrong. Uh, so uh, it's a joke we're not going to bother to explain. So, I mean, Rebecca Castellani, my initial thought, 
and this is because I'm kind of un- under-evolved, but I saw, when I saw the video, I thought, well, Pete Davidson must be thrilled because, you know, I mean... He's he a did, big Kanye fan. He's a big Kanye fan, kind of, although he's also made fun of Kanye uh, on previous occasions. But it's like, you know, I mean... Well, I mean, just for example, John Mulaney hosted Saturday Night Live last weekend, and he opened with stuff that happened at his drug intervention, and and and, and, and you know, he just used his biggest scandal uh, as material and did it really effectively and very hilariously. And Pete Davidson must be thinking, well, I don't have to do anything except date Kim Kardashian, and then my material will get written for me. But there is a much more sinister side to this, and I think you should talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand pain and turning that into beautiful art and maybe not handling that process with the most grace. And I also really respect and appreciate that Kanye has some very real mental health issues that he's had a documented struggle with. And I have nothing but sympathy for that. But I think if you drain this whole situation of the celebrity, the behavior that he is exhibiting towards Kim is objectively alarming. I mean, beyond just the initial refusal to grant her divorce, he bought a house across the street from her. He's after he moved on from Julia Fox, he's now dating a woman that looks like Kim Kardashian's literal doppelganger, which is alarming. Now, this latest video in which he abducts and buries a claymation Pete Davidson alive. I mean, it's it's I get it like it's some next level like timeline alternate timeline entertainment happening here but i also feel like if we take the celebrity out of it it is low-key emotional abuse and i think i i when a woman leaves a relationship it is the most dangerous time historically and i think that just turning this into a what's kanye gonna do next pete versus kanye thing is sort of diminishing the fact that there is a woman trying to get her children and herself out of a potentially dangerous situation. And we're kind of just memifying it. And it just kind of gives me the ick. I don't know. It's, it's difficult. And I, again, I understand that Kanye is a genius. I have appreciated his art over the years, but I do think you can process your feelings, create great art and not make the mother of your children feel unsafe. Right. Just, just so people, you know, can contextualize this a little bit. We'll play a tiny bit of the song. This is the song in which in the video, Pete, Davidson is kind of graphically beheaded and worse. Um, so is there something worse than being beheaded? Maybe not. Uh, so it's called Easy. Uh, we'll hear just a little bit of it. There is an uncensored N-word in this song. I'm going to maybe try to fade it before we get to that. I ain't bring nothing to the table when I'm the table. I'm going to turn up the music, wake up the neighbors. I'm going to get that thug life tatted across the navel. It's how I am in real life, not just okay. Mr. Narcissist, tell me about my arrogance. No more counseling, I don't negotiate with therapists. God, yeah, want to let God in. But tonight, I guess I'll let my pride win. Yeah, I got it. I got it. But he goes on to say, you know, we having the best divorce ever, which is manifestly untrue. Um, and if we go to court, we'll go to court together, all this kind of stuff. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it's really interesting from the perspective, uh, Sam, of the hip-hop aesthetic overall, because the hip-hop aesthetic, not that they invented this or anything, but uh, but they may have perfected it, is your life is your material, even more than for a comedian. Your life is your material. So maybe the artistic argument on Kanye's behalf is, well, then that's what he's feeling right now. He's got to make this stuff. I just think that we've all created a monster. Like uh, <laughs> everybody, everybody like was crying wolf. And I've been like thinking about how I'm going to contextualize this. Like it feels like for so long, so many people were foaming at the mouth to talk badly about Kanye even before the MAGA thing because he's confident and he makes hip hop music and that 
uh, offsets certain demographics. Um, but and now that like there's a justification to actually talk about his behavior in a negative spotlight. Well, everybody's been crying wolf for about 15 years, so we can't take it seriously. And he's basically developed his own platform to where his listeners are so entrenched in what he's doing that they're like calling Pete Davidson that nickname that I don't think I can say on NPR. Like, <laughs> I don't think you can. Uh, I, I don't. I don't know. I. I, I kind of. I blame the media. I Same. blame. I. I don't know. It, I. I feel like we're all just suffering for the sins of not taking one of the greatest artists ever seriously before things really went off the went off the tracks so like, yeah i mean i i feel ahead. like we're complicit even having this conversation like it, it's it's a tough one like i don't want to continue to give him a platform for this negative stuff i wish we could just you know focus on the output and not like all the other stuff that's happening around it because the more attention he gets the worse it's getting like but that, but that's the point he is the platform he yeah. doesn't he doesn't need a he doesn't even need streaming services at this point he's selling his right. music on his own device like there's a like, Trumpian quality to it. I mean, Trump having to go create his own social platform because he's been banned everywhere else. I mean, there is that, you know, narcissism underneath this that craves this attention. I mean, I, I'm not going to jump a couple miles to that, but I will say that, <laughs> um, I don't know. I just feel like, yeah, we've all just kind of created this monster and now we're living with it. All right. Um, maybe on that note, uh, and, and not to extend the conversation more than necessary, we can just devote a few minutes, and we don't have a lot of time for this. But So Wheel of Fortune, I don't know, <laughs> de- decades and decades ago, Dave Barry described Wheel of Fortune as contestants squinting really hard at a board that says H blank P-P-Y space B-I-R-T-H-D blank why and they're just like i don't know what this could be like what is it you know <laughs> and i don't really watch the thing that much but there is an element of that but the this week uh the the answer was another feather in your cap there were only three, le- <laughs> three letters <laughs> missing uh for for a while there were four letters missing i guess historically and and the, they just couldn't come up with it and and rebecca social media can be so cruel um and I don't know. I mean, is that is it okay to laugh at people when they're when they're kind of stupid on Wheel of Fortune? Yeah, if we can't laugh at Wheel of Fortune, I'm opting out. I mean, <laughs> the whole construct of Wheel of Fortune is hilarious. And I think like one of the most apex level of trolling period is it being on after Jeopardy. Like you go from this very like fact driven, you either know it or you don't, to the anecdote you just described. I mean, it's it's comical. It's a silly show. The only time I've ever really watched it is when it's left on the television after I watched Jeopardy. So if we can't make fun of the people that can't figure out that if hat doesn't work, cap is the next guess, I mean, we're doomed. <laughs> we're doomed as a society. I do think it's really unfair that it comes on after Jeopardy. And I think it should be the other way around. It's like, of course. okay. That's why it's great trolling. Right. You watch... You watched Wheel of Fortune. Maybe you feel like sticking around and trying Jeopardy, which is really kind of, you know. Level up. Yeah. Man, yeah, Instead, s- it's like. Several levels up in this case, you know. But, yeah, that if you're watching Jeopardy and you really like Jeopardy and then the TV's still on and you go out to the kitchen, you hear this inanity kind of blaring at you. It just it seems very very unfair. So, Sam, I'm, I'm guessing Wheel of Fortune is somewhere close to Broadway musicals in, in your categories of interest. But did you have a particular take on all this? Uh, actually, you'd be completely wrong. When Uh-oh. I was a kid, I, I used to watch Jeopardy back-to-back with Wheel of Fortune. I actually love game shows. Like, nothing makes me feel stronger about the general public than 
game shows. It's either like, I'm rooting for you. I'm rooting for your family. Go get that car, sis. Or like, I'm like, God, you are the dumbest person alive. <laughs> and that's, and I was like screaming at my phone the whole time. I'm like, cap, cap. Like, I, how the hell, how the hell did nobody get this? And like, I don't know. I do feel like there is some 1200 word New Yorker piece going to talk about, uh, cancel culture and how it's extended to wheel of fortune and how <laughs> nobody's safe from the, the, the what, what was the phrasing we used at the beginning of the show? The, the, the woke uh, police. Woke, yeah. The woke police. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't know. I think people are going to take this seriously at some point. Uh, but I was just like angry. I was like, what is wrong with these people? Like, especially during the Wordle era. Like, I know. That's what I was thinking, too. Come on, people. Like, like we're living them. And trust me, I've had my fair share of dunceness when it comes to Wordle and wanted to fist fight technology. But, like, come on, Cap. All right. I'm I'm so with you, Sam. I I will end with a confession, which will be backed up by my my partner, who Sam has known, I think, all of his life. Uh, But to her consternation, when we're watching Jeopardy, I would never do this in front of anybody except her and the dog. Uh, But when we're watching Jeopardy Jeopardy and somebody's really being thick, I do kind of I don't just I don't really just yell at them. I really just say horrible things to them. (laughs) I say, oh, go home, Lauren. You said during the break, you've got 48 unicorns in your apartment. Go back to your sad life for those unicorns because you have failed. You have been found wanting. You know, <laughs> is, that horrible? is that horrible by that's, today's standards? That seems really kind of like neutral. <laughs> can we have a Jeopardy watch party that's where right. we just cancel Colin? That's I'm right. so into this. Go home to your sad life and your unicorns. Uh, but that is some of the fun of game shows. I just wouldn't do it publicly. I think it's just kind of mean on social media. Although one of the guys who got made fun of, I think both of them were kind of good sports about it. So, I mean, the Wheel of Fortune guys. So, all right, we have to stop there anyway. We're going to come back. We're going to make some recommendations. I am going to make a Jeopardy-adjacent endorsement of some kind. We are back. Uh, great to have Cat Pastor back in the booth as our technical producer, although Jean Amatruda was noble and able and Jedi-like in her absence. Oh, and Katie Dolarsky did one, too. The big kid, the coach. Um, and But great to have Cat back. And uh, Jonathan McPants is the producer of The Nose, as is often, as is usually, as is almost always the case. I don't usually do this, but I'm going to promote forward here. If you're listening towards the end of the week, uh, we're going to begin the week with a show, an episode on Monday about schadenfreude. I can't believe in all of our years we've never done a whole episode about schadenfreude, but we're... We're, we're, we're checking off that box now. All right. So Rebecca Castellani and Sam Hadleman are both with us. We're about to make some recommendations for you as you head into your weekend. Rebecca, what have you got for us? So first, I've got for you um, a West Side Story adjacent recommendation, and that is a 60 Minutes episode that I believe happened in November 2021 with Rita Moreno. And she talks all about her early career, her experience filming both West Side Stories. And it's just a really nice snapshot of who she is as a person, what a trailblazer she's been, and why she still looks so iconic at 90. I mean, just really, if you're a West Side Story fan, definitely check it out. My other recommendation is something I really didn't think I was going to be into, but ended up thoroughly enjoying. And that is Reacher on Amazon Prime. <laughs> 
no, I, did I, I steal your endorsement? No, no, but I, I, I've watched it too, and I, I want to hear what you say. Yeah, like I, I don't know. I've not seen the Tom Cruise version. I've not read the books, and I am not super into like aggressive dude bro action stuff. But I really loved it, and I thought that the cast, which is kind of largely unknown, was fantastic. It was very campy for an action movie or an action series. It just, I don't know. If if you're kind of like someone like me, that's like I. I want something that's engaging. I'm not super into action, but maybe I'm tempted. I mean, I, I would recommend it. It's interesting. It's funny. I got some laughs out of it, and the action was good. Right. This guy, the new Reacher, I mean, I, the people who really love the books, they, they say that the Reacher should look like this guy and not at all like shrimpy Tom Cruise. This, I mean, this guy's neck is like bigger than- He's a brick house. Yeah. Like, and, and you know, Rebecca, we recently did a, a, um, a segment or excuse me, a whole episode about crying and about the stage crying and stuff like that. And so the moment when Reacher, this, this guy yes. with this elephant-sized neck has a little tear that goes down his face. I was oh. thinking about that. Anyway, what's your other uh, recommendation? Uh, the- uh, Rita Moreno. Oh, Rita Moreno. Oh, both of yeah. those. Okay. So yeah. we're all set. I want to say there is a doc, uh, um, a documentary about um, uh, Rita Moreno as well. Uh, I think it's on Netflix, but don't hold me to that. Uh, also, there's the, there's a little, if you watch on HBO, if you watch West Side Story on HBO, there's a little extra down below. And it, it's a um, um, it's an interview, a Zoom interview with Rita Moreno, Russ Tamblin, and George Shakiris, who I think are the surviving major figures, acting figures from there. Uh, and it's Ben Mankiewicz, I think, who's uh, doing the interview. And it's really interesting. And it actually includes like things that you didn't know, including for me the shocking news that in the song America, you know, when she sings, I love the Isle of Manhattan, someone goes, I know you do. Uh, and that was uh, a member of the cast who was kind of a cut up. Her name was Yvonne Wilder, I think. And and um, it wasn't in the script. It's just something she blurted out. And and now it's sort of part of it. You don't I do that it. song. You don't do that song without I know you do, which is fascinating. All right, Sam, uh, what have you got for us? Um, okay. Uh, Jonathan, you might want to cover your ears. I saw the Batman last night, and <laughs> I, I don't want to give anything away, but it's not anything what I expected. It's like an actual Batman movie, and it was <laughs> breathtaking. Really? It was like, it was like euphoric. That's how I was Wow. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to give too much away. I'm well, not gonna. I'm not a spoiler guy, but just go see it. Right. Uh, oh, Robert so Paul. we're Robert Pattinson is the Batman. We should say that one of the. I'm not making this up. This sounds like a joke, but one of the sanctions imposed on Russia is that they don't get the Batman. They're they're not going to get the Batman movie. So there. Uh, sorry, sorry, y'all. It's a it's amazing. Y'all picked the wrong week because right. that movie that movie's great. Um, and the other one I'm going to recommend is the new Currency and Alchemist project. Um, it was absolutely phenomenal for those of you who don't know who like currency is. He's kind of like an old new Orleans rapper and alchemist is kind of like a modern day maestro of the underground hip hop scene. And, uh, it's called continuance. If you are someone who just kind of wants to ease back into what's going on in hip hop, all currency raps about is recreational activities and old cars. It's amazing. It's phenomenal. You'll love it. All right. I, it's now waiting for me on my iPhone because Sam never fails to send these things to me. So uh, <laughs> I, I will be checking that out. So I said I would do a, um, a, a Jeopardy adjacent uh, recommendation. And this is a risk. Predictions are so risky, particularly as regards Jeopardy. But from the moment that I saw the woman who's currently on just a three night run, that's all. Uh, her name is Margaret Shelton. I thought she's got something. There's something about her, and she has this kind of. Uh, she looks great in this sort of cat lady way, uh, and she's just really, really smart, and she's funny, uh, and I could just see her 
you know, putting together some kind of huge Holzhauer like uh, run here. Uh, so it's a ri- it's ri- so risky to prediction. She's to predict. got like the fifties glasses too. Yeah, like, no, she's got this kind of style icon. She's got this Eileen Fisher Chico's yeah. thing, you know. But then yeah. she's got the Catwoman glass, the Catwoman glasses on the lanyard or whatever you call that. Yeah, it's just yeah, her whole thing. It's a very uh-huh. it's a very tied together look. You know, it's all pulled together in a very particular way. And, and she and reminds me of like a college creative writing professor, and I'm about it. <laughs> um, I'm glad to see I'm not the only Margaret Shelton fan on this show then. Um, all right. So and then the other thing that I'm going to uh, recommend here is uh, West Side Story adjacent. Uh, it is, in fact, this um, I'm only going to re- recommend half of it. There's an album which you can find on most streaming services. I believe it's called Songs from West Side Story. It was done quite a few years ago. Uh, and it has a lot of your favorite pop performers doing these songs completely out of context. Now, about half of the album is kind of yacht rock. And I don't even hate yacht rock, but I really don't need to hear Michael McDonald sing Maria. Uh, so, I mean, there's sort of that, and you can sort of sweep that aside. But then there are these just amazing things. There's Anita, there's Aretha Franklin singing somewhere. Uh, there, there is a oh, version wow. of America that's Patti LaBelle, Natalie Cole, and Sheila E. At the en- At the end, they pivot it to a gospel-style finish. Um, there, there's like, well, I don't know, all for one singing something's coming. Uh, there's kind of, I sent to Sam today, this kind of hippie, hoppy, deaf Jeff, Lisa, Left Eye Lopez, Salt and Pepper version of Officer Krupke. There's just a lot of fun stuff on it. So, I mean, just check it out. Call out all of the Yacht Rock. Uh, unless you want to hear Trisha, you would sing, you know. One hand, one heart, or whatever she sings, uh, and uh, and this then enjoy it. We're going to end with the most spectacular idea they had for this album. Go ahead, Cat. 